we're glad you're here tonight. We're glad that our campers are back and uh, very thankful that everyone had a safe, productive weekend and hopefully and prayerfully a good way to launch into the new week. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the passage that was read a moment ago. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, talked about the importance of proving all things and holding fast that which is good. And then he would say, abstain from the very form or appearance of evil. And so we're going to be talking about that in a moment or two. Before we do begin, I want to say that I know that a lot of work has been going on with regard to prepping for VBS. And I, I know that there is always a need for helpers. And so if you have the time, I know you have the ability, and if you have the time, I know that those who are a part of VBS this, this coming year, they would be more than happy to have you uh, take part. We need a lot, it really requires a lot of moving parts. And uh, we appreciate Debbie and all the work that she puts into VBS every year. And uh, she and Jared have been working side by side in many ways. I know that Jared is looking like, what are you talking about? But uh, nonetheless, uh, Debbie has done a lot of work and she does a tremendous job. And so if you have the opportunity to be a part of this year's VBS, please talk to her, talk to Jared, uh, see, see one of them and they will point you in the right direction. Tonight we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the theme of our study tonight, prove all things by the book. And when I make reference to the book, I'm talking about the book of all books, the Bible. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 writes to the saints in the first century. And Paul said, prove or test all things. And then he would add, hold fast that which is good. In verse 22, he would admonish readers of every age, abstain from the very form or appearance of evil. So tonight we want to think about proving all things by the book or by the Bible because the Bible is our standard of authority, isn't it? The song we sang just a moment ago, Give Me the Bible. We have great appreciation for God's Word. We understand that God's Word is a lamp under our feet, a light under our pathway. God's Word has the ability to safely guide us from earth to heaven. And so tonight we want to think for a moment or two about what Paul has said in this great chapter. I want to begin by, first of all, emphasizing the fact that there is a call for an examination. Now listen again to what Paul said, prove or test all things. I think first and foremost, we must be willing to test the messenger. We must be willing to test the messenger. And the reason is because sometimes those who advocate certain things from Scripture are not found in the Scriptures. There are many, many warnings in the Scriptures applicable to all of us encouraging us to be on guard. In Matthew chapter 7, in what typically is called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. He said, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, He said, they are ravening wolves. 
In 1 John chapter 4, John wrote in the latter part of the first century, John was writing to combat those who did not believe in the deity and humanity of Jesus. They did not accept the fact that sinless deity inhabited human flesh. And so John, in writing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, said, Beloved, believe not every spirit or teacher, but rather try or test the teachers. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Down in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 4, John talks about the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we must be willing to investigate the messenger. You remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul and Silas made their way from Philippi to Thessalonica, or rather to the city of Berea. When they left Thessalonica and they arrived in Berea, the Bible tells us that those in Berea were more, were more noble or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. He said, because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. Now, if you look at Acts chapter, well, if you look at Acts chapter 17, and you think about here were people investigating what they heard in light of divine Scripture. But who were they testing? Paul. Paul was an inspired apostle. And yet, they investigated what he had to say. So it's incumbent on us to make sure that we are willing to prove or to test the messenger. Now, not only are we encouraged to test the messenger, but we must prove or test the message. And really, the question is, does it meet the litmus test of divine truth? There are a lot of people in our world today that have not accepted the authoritative Word of God. Now, we believe that the Scriptures are our rule or guide in matters of conduct and faith, don't we? I think about the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 16, Paul would say, let us walk by the same rule. The Bible would tell us that that rule would be the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, in an effort to stem the tide of division that existed in the city of Corinth among those who were believers in that city, he said in an effort to stem the tide of division, the admonition was to all speak the same thing. The only way that we can speak the same thing is to have the same standard, and the same standard would be God's holy word. So we have to be willing to investigate. Now you think about the importance of truth. Many, many years ago, Pontius Pilate raised this question, what is truth? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth, John 17, verse 17. Well, how important is truth? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. We're going to be judged on the basis of not what people say, not on the basis of what we think or what the popular opinion might be, but rather we're going to be judged on the basis of God's holy and inspired Word. So if that be the case, then we need to make sure that our lives are in harmony with the Word of God. What I've done tonight, I want us to just think for a minute or two. I came up with a list 
of popular doctrines that are propagated by people in our world today, and I've called it The Devil's Dirty Dozen. Now, you may remember a movie some years ago, many years ago, called The Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. Well, there are about a dozen things that are very popular by way of doctrinal teaching in our world today. And what we have to understand is that there are a lot of people that will propagate certain things, but you know, when you make a proposition, you need to be able to sustain that proposition, don't you? So whatever we teach, whatever we preach, whatever we advocate, we must be willing to sustain it. Not by human opinion, not by what I think or what somebody else thinks, but rather by the Word of God. Now, what, what was it Paul said? Prove, test all things. So we've got to be willing to test, to place things under a, a divine microscope and then begin to sift through that information and then draw our conclusions. So let me just cite for you the 12 things that I have listed that I've called the dirty dozen. You might want to call them something else. But this is what I've come up with. Number one, there are many, many people down through the ages of time that have said unequivocally, there is no God. Now in our day and time, it's not unheard of to hear educated people, well-educated people, make the claim there is no God. Well, is that the case? Is there no God? Well, what about the idea that there are many gods, a plurality of gods? And then what about the idea that in terms of our being a part of this planet that we call Earth, that everything is just the product of chance or some type of cataclysmic explosion? that we are the products of evolution. Is that true? That's the proposition, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what people are saying? We live in a day and time when people want to unequivocally state there is no God. In order to make that claim, somebody must, somebody must be omniscient, all-knowing. I don't know anybody on planet Earth who is omniscient. Because in order to unequivocally say there is no God, you must have the ability to go everywhere, to see everything, to know everything, to know that there is no God. Well, the bottom line is, there is no one like that on planet Earth. Can we know that there is a God? Yes or no? Well, how do we know? Somebody says, I know because I know. Well, how do you know? Can't we come to an understanding of the character and nature of God based on revelation? But let's just say that we close the Bible. We're talking to somebody who says there is no God. We're talking to somebody who says, you know what? You are the product of evolution. Well, doesn't it stand to reason that design demands a designer? That everything must have an antecedent cause? Sometimes we use the term biogenesis. And the idea is that life comes from life, doesn't it? We didn't come from a rock. We didn't come from the sea, did we? But rather, we are the products of an almighty God. 
Who made this pulpit? Somebody had to make it, didn't they? Not only did someone make it, but somebody had to design it. What about this building? Is it just the product of chance? Or did somebody sit down and draw plans and then use those plans to build this building? The home you live in. Somebody, somebody, sometime, somewhere, drew the plans. A builder came along and then following those specs, did what? Built your house. The automobile that you drove to services tonight. What if I told you that's just the product of chance? Well, you'd say you've lost your mind. Well, the bottom line is somebody made that automobile, didn't they? Somebody designed it, and then somebody built it. Well, what about the world in which we live? Do you remember what the Hebrew writer said? Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. What about the human family? Did somebody create us? Jesus said, at the beginning, he made them what? Male and female. When was the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. Six days God created the heavens, the earth, and all things therein, didn't He? That would include man. Let me ask this question with regard to the human family. What came first? To those who want to say that we're the products of evolution, what came first? The chicken or the egg? Now somebody says, that's absurd. Well, that's just how absurd evolution is, isn't it? I mean, what came first? I mean, if you're so well-educated and you've thought this thing through and you espouse this theory, then what came first? Isn't it amazing that we have both male and female, if evolution is true, and that they are suitable partners one for another? The body. You mean to tell me that my eyes are the product of chance? That my hearing is the product of chance? The ability to speak? The brain that we possess? You mean to tell me that that brain is just the product of some chance? You see how foolish this whole concept is? David said, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. God made the human, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, there are a lot of folks in the world today that want to say there is no God. And really what they're saying is they don't want to be governed by an almighty creator. That's why they don't want God in their lives. The psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What he's saying is no God for me. So if you want to live an unrestrained life, you want, to do what you, you want to do what you please, then what's the easiest way to go about that? Dismiss the concept of God. So we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. The world in which we live lends evidence to the fact that there is an almighty God. Think about your, think about, think about your teeth. You mean to tell me that your teeth are the products of chance? that you have front teeth that 
have the ability to bite into things. You have back teeth that allow you to grind your food. All that's just chance. Let me tell you what. If evolution is true, and it's not, then we're talking about I mean, you talk about the odds of evolution being true. I mean, absurd. And yet people buy into that stuff, don't they? I mean, aren't people taught that this is how we came into being? Sure it is. The psalmist said, David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Every night when we stand out under a starlit canopy, of sky. We see the evidence of an almighty creator, don't we? Design demands a designer. Everything must have an antecedent cause. We have been made in the image and the likeness of almighty God. So this idea, there is no God. Isn't it incumbent on us when somebody says there's no God? Don't you think we have the responsibility of sitting down, sifting through the evidence and drawing our conclusions? How do we know that there's a God? Number one, by creation. Number two, by revelation. You can't know the mind of God separate and apart from revelation. Now, number two, with regard to the devil's dirty dozen. The Bible is not the inspired Word of God. There are a lot of folks in the world today that will tell you that this book is nothing more than a fable, a book of fiction. But you know, again, when you talk about making a proposition, if you're going to be able to, if you're going to make a proposition, you must be able to sustain that proposition. So tell me, how in the world do you have a book that we call the Bible, penned over a period of about 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors or writers, superintended by the Holy Spirit, Individuals of differing occupational, well, differing op occupations. You're talking about individuals that come from varying backgrounds, different eras, or we talk about the time in which the Bible was written, and yet the unity and the symmetry of Scripture. Paul said all Scripture, every Scripture, is inspired of God, didn't he? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Do you remember Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness? And then you remember down in verse 20, he said, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What he's saying there is, God's Word is not the product of the human mind. He said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. David said in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 3 that he received revelation from God. He said he took that revelation and wrote it down in human words. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said, The things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So, 66 books in the Bible. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, and they fit hand in glove, don't they? In the Old Testament, 
Those great people of God, they were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In the Old Testament, those great prophets of God, they wrote in types and shadows of a better, of a better day. And the Lord Jesus established a new covenant founded upon better promises, according to Hebrews chapter 8. So God's Word is inspired, isn't it? And you think about the many different complexities of Scripture. I said a moment ago, the unity and symmetry of Scripture. The focal point of Scripture is human redemption. The fact that Jesus came to save us from sin. And so, the idea that the Bible is just a book among many books. No, it's not just a book among many books. It is the book, isn't it? And what about the timelessness of God's Word? You know, the psalmist said many, many years ago, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my pathway. God's Word transcends time, doesn't it? God said forever, or the psalmist really said, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. There have been many people down through the ages that have done their best to destroy the Word of God, haven't they? There have been folks that have done everything within their power to undermine the authority of Scripture, to destroy the Bible. And yet, what was it Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8? The Word of our God stands forever. God's Word will stand the test of time. And you think about all of the things that we have here on planet Earth, all of the, the things that, that make life so comfortable. All of the things that we possess will ultimately yield to time. The only thing that we will see that we have this side of eternity in the next realm is God's Word. That's it. God's Word will stand forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. Now, there's a third thing I want to cite for you. And that is, there is no absolute body of truth that can be understood. There are many, many people in our world today that will tell you that you just can't understand God's Word. There's no way that you can fully comprehend the Word and the will of God. Well, obviously, they seem to know something that Paul didn't know. They must know something that Jesus didn't know. Now, I will grant in the book of Judges, the writer speaks of a day and time when there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We have a standard, don't we? And we talk about the Holy Scriptures. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. God intends for us to understand His Word and to utilize it in our daily lives, doesn't He? So what about this idea that we just can't understand Scripture? Do you believe that? Jesus said in John 8 verse 32, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Do you believe what Jesus said? Sure you do. Paul said he received revelation from God. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words, whereby when you read, listen to him, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul, are you saying that you receive revelation from God? Yes, sir. Are you saying that I can take that revelation, I can read it and understand it? That's exactly right. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It might take some time. It's going to take some effort. But we can understand God's Word, can't we? Peter talks about those things that Paul wrote. He said there are some of, those th some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. He didn't say impossible. He just said they're hard to understand. Are there things that will tax our mental capacity that will push us to the limit? Yes. Are there, are there certain subjects that we have to chew on, think about, meditate upon from time to time? Why, absolutely. But the bottom line is, we can know the truth. And the importance of knowing truth is, number one, you've got to know the truth to be saved. You've got to know the truth to stay in a covenant relationship to God, don't you? When God gave the law to the children of Israel through Moses many, many years ago, God entered into a covenant relationship with them, and guess what? He expected them to comply with His will, with His Word. And the bottom line is He expected them to comprehend that body of information delivered unto them. He talked about how He bore them on eagle's wings and brought them to Himself. He said, if you'll keep my covenant, if you'll obey my word, indicating to us that they could have understood His word, that they could have complied with it just as we can today under the new dispensation. Now, consider number four. Again, we're talking about the devil's dirty dozen. These are things that, you know, I think about if I were the devil, if you were the devil, wouldn't there be certain things that you'd want to, to just pawn off on people? I mean, the idea that there's no God or that you're the product of evolution or the Bible's not the inspired Word of God or you can't really understand the Bible. I mean, why waste your time with that stuff? You can't understand it. You've got to have an official interpreter. Well, look at number four. Religious authority rests in the church. Now, there are people that believe that. They advocate that. Religious authority rests in the church. Well, Jesus said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. In chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus said, or rather, God the Father said about Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So everything that we do, religiously speaking, we are to do in the name of, by the authority of, Jesus Christ. Well, does the authority rest in the church? No, the authority rests in what we call the Scriptures. Jesus said the Scriptures can't be broken. Churches can be wrong, people can be wrong, but the Bible is always right. That's why when we talk about proving all things by the book, when somebody tells you something, religiously speaking, or when they advocate something, or when they pose a proposition to you, what, what do you need to do? You need to prove it, don't you? You need to make sure that what you hear coincides with what God has said. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, or if I'm delayed, he said, I write these things to you. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he talked about the church of the living God. He said that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 
Well, what's your point? The point is the church has the responsibility of preaching truth. We have the responsibility, members of the body of Christ have the responsibility of upholding the authoritative words of Jesus, don't we? The authority does not rest in the church, it rests in the Bible, in God's Word. That's why when we teach people, when we talk to people about what Jesus said, we want to say, look, here's what the Lord said. Not what I say, not what some church says or some creed book or manual of faith, but rather this is what the Bible says. We want to read it for ourselves, don't we? We want to encourage people to be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. Number five, mankind is born in sin. Have you heard that? There are a lot of people that believe we are born in sin. Sin made its way into the world through the transgression of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. We do not inherit the sin of Adam. No, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. In verse 20 of Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel said, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Listen again, verse 4, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Now, do we live in a world of sin? Yes, we do. Well, what does sin mean? A missing of the mark. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible tells us sin is the transgression of the law. Let's just say someone says, my newborn baby needs to be baptized because he or she was born in sin. Could I respectfully ask this question? What sin did that baby commit? That child didn't commit a sin. And why the need to be baptized? Jesus said, He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, shall be saved. We're talking about believer's baptism, not infant baptism, which is not found in Scripture. So think about it. These, these are doctrines that people readily accept. They believe that we're born in sin. As a matter of fact, many, many people in the religious world at large, that's what they think that we are born in sin. Number six, the sinner's prayer. How many people in our world tonight have recited the sinner's prayer? They have done so in belief that that will make them a Christian, a child of God. Don't you think that we need to ask, what does the Bible say? I mean, when people say, all you need to do is say this prayer. If you'll recite this prayer, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, ask Him to come into your heart, He'll save you from your sins. Could I ask this question? Where do you read that in Scripture? Where do you read the sinner's prayer in the Bible? On the day of Pentecost, when the Apostle Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel for the very first time, do you remember the central figure of his preaching and teaching was Jesus, the crucified Son of God who was raised from the dead? The Bible says those people on that day were cut or pricked 
in their heart. So they cry out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now think about it. Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus said to Peter and the apostles, He would give unto them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys signifying authority. And we talk about keys being used to unlock doors. In this context, the keys of the kingdom signified the unlocking of the doors to the kingdom of God, didn't they? So how then were people in the first century able to enter the kingdom of God? What was the criteria? Do you not think in Acts chapter 2, I mean, we're talking about the birth of the church. This institution that was born and bred in the mind of God that is included in the redemptive plan. So we've got the gospel being preached in its fullness for the first time in the history of man. And they want to know, what do we need to do? What did Peter say? Did Peter say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your head with me. And I want you to recite this prayer, if you would. And as you recite this prayer, asking the Lord Jesus to come into your heart, you'll be saved from your sins. Is that what he said? No, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's not about what he said. That's exactly what he said. Now think about that for a minute. We're talking about the devil's dirty dozen. Do you think the devil delights in people propagating something that is not found in Scripture? And passing it on as if it is divine truth? Yes. There are so many, many people in our world today that have been told, this is how you become a Christian. And yet, we have the birth of the church. And on Pentecost Day, Luke said some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now let me just add to, that, to this thought the idea that baptism is not essential to salvation. Have you heard that? How many times have you heard somebody say, now listen, you've got to understand, you do not need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Now you need to be baptized but it's not to be saved. It is an outward sign of an inward faith. Let me just read for you a statement that was made. I've got a study Bible in my office. It's called the MacArthur Study Bible. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, I want you to listen to what John MacArthur writes in his notes. Now, again, think about what Peter said. Pentecost Day, they've asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Here's what he writes, and I quote, This might better be translated, and he has, for the remission of sins. This might better be translated because of the remission of sins. Now listen. Baptism does not produce forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Now, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you know more than the Apostle Peter? Are you telling me that you know more than Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And that is a quotation. It's not 
my interpretation of what the Son of God said. That is an absolute quotation. So you're saying you know more than what Jesus said? You're saying you know more than what the Apostle Peter said? What about Paul? Paul said that when Ananias came to him, he said, Arise and be baptized, listen to him, and wash away your sins. Now either, either he's right or he's wrong. He's true or he's false. Jesus said that belief and baptism precede salvation. Peter said repentance and baptism precede the remission of sins. Paul said that Ananias told him baptism precedes the washing away of sins. So let me just ask this question. Who am I to come along and say you don't have to be baptized into Christ? And by the way, do you remember in, in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed, listen to him, same phraseology, for the remission of sins. When did Jesus shed his blood in death? For what? For the remission of sins. The possibility of enjoying the benefits of the remission of sins did not occur until Jesus died on Calvary's cross. Now we talk about the importance of New Testament baptism. And there are those in our world today that say you don't have to be baptized into Christ to be saved. Well, let me tell you this. The Bible says that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, right? In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1, 7. First, well, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John said unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. Here's the question. If we're saved by the blood of Christ, then wouldn't it stand to reason that we need to access that blood in order to be saved, right? Where did Jesus shed His blood? He shed His blood in death, didn't He? John 19, 34 and 35. The only way that I can access the blood of Jesus is by being baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that? Romans 6, verse 3. Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus, listen to Him, were baptized into His death. Well, why do we need to be baptized into Christ? For salvation, Mark 16, 16. For the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. For the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. Let me tell you what, that's not about it, that's it. That's what the Bible teaches. So when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, you really don't need to be baptized. I mean, what's, what's all that baptism stuff? Well, really the question is, what did, what did the Lord say? What did Peter say? Don't you find it interesting in Acts chapter 8 when Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to those people? The Bible says when they believed Philip preaching the kingdom of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A little bit later we find Philip coming in contact with a eunuch. He had been to Jerusalem to worship God. He's on his way back home. He's reading Isaiah 53. He's got a scroll. He's reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. So Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He wants to know, how can I accept some men guide me? Philip gets up into the chariot, and the Bible says, beginning at that same scripture, that is beginning at Isaiah 53, he preached unto him Jesus. Very next verse. The Bible says, when they came to certain water, 
The eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? How do you think he knew anything about baptism? Don't you think that obviously Philip, in his preaching about the Christ, talked about the importance of being baptized? Why would you ever preach the man and not tell the plan? You think that makes sense? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, okay? Jesus is the Savior of the world. If I want to access His blood to be a part of His body, I need to be baptized into Christ. Now, very quickly, we're not going to get finished. Otherwise, we'll be here a long time. I don't think you want to be here a long time. Let me just add this very quickly. Number eight, the devil's dirty dozen. Because it goes hand in hand with the idea you don't need to be baptized. You don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, you can have a relationship with Jesus, but this church stuff, I mean, that's not really that important. You don't have to, you don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. Well, if you're going to make that proposition, you better be willing and able to defend it, to support it. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that those who were baptized were what? They were added to the church daily. Acts 5, verse 14, the Bible says, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. The word belief here is a synecdoche, a part for the whole. Well, how were they added to the Lord? They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins. They were baptized into Christ. And what did the Lord do? He added them to the saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized, listen to him, into one body. You mean to tell me when I'm baptized into Christ, I am baptized into the body of Christ? Yes. When you're baptized into Christ, you contact the blood of Christ, you're added to the body of Christ. Well, why do you need to be a member of the body? Because Paul said in Ephesians 5.23, Jesus is the Savior of the body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church. Colossians 1.18. So, do you have to be a member of the church to go to heaven? Yes, you do. Well, how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. You see what? Paul told the saints in Thessalonica is so relevant because there are so many people out here that are saying this and they're saying that, they're teaching this, they're teaching that, but the bottom line is what they're teaching, and I say this respectfully, it's not in the Word of God. Now think about it. Paul said we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. God's going to judge me on the basis of divine truth. John said, I saw the dead, the small and great, standing before God. The books were open. What books, John? God's holy word. And the dead were judged according to their works. Their works in light of what this book says. So, Paul said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prove all things. How are we to do that? By the book, by the Bible. Here's what Peter said. If any, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's Bible. Peter's saying, look, we need to be able, we need to be able to find it in Scripture, don't we? If what you're saying is truth, then it needs to be found in Scripture. In Romans chapter 4, Paul asks this question. I want to close here. Paul asked this question, what does the Scripture say? 
Now, we're talking about the devil's dirty dozen. And quite frankly, the devil has pulled the wool over a lot of people in our world today. And so what we've got to do is encourage people. We've got to plead with people to open their Bible, to read it, to study it, and to make sure that what is found in this book, or rather what is being said, is found in this book. That makes sense? All right, we're going to close there. We're a long way from home. At least I am anyway, because I only got through a little bit of the first point. But if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're not a New Testament Christian, and maybe what you're hearing tonight, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. Lovingly, kindly, we beg you, please, look at what the Bible has to say. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of, his, repent of your sins, confess His name, be buried with Him in baptism. Let God put you in the church and then be faithful until death. If you're here tonight, you need to respond to the invitation. Won't you do so as we stand and sing?